This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi. Buenos dias. This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough. And this is episode 13. Wow, that's just your longest one yet. Stand there. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Well, this episode is one that we have recorded already, and I knew deep down in my heart. <laughs> I'm quivering as I say this, that this would happen. No. But we lost an episode. We did. This is our second time recording this, this episode. episode, episode yeah. 13. And when I say we lost it, I mean me the and computer. Audacity. No, I will. Together. I want to say this. You want to take responsibility for losing it, but it's not your fault. I do. If you could just, like, beat me. <laughs> you want some flagellation <laughs> yeah, going on? somebody please. I can't blame you. Oh, God, yeah. But we're here again, and it's April, and it's um, National Poetry Month, at least in America. Yes. Um, And we decided that we were going to do a couple of episodes about some poets that you might not have heard about. To celebrate some of the rhyme. Yeah. And, I mean, poetry is just chapters favorite thing in the world so (laughs) you (laughs) you told me you said hey i've got a great idea for our next couple of episodes i love it and i was like i can't wait and you said it's poetry month and i was literally (laughs) crestfallen the word crestfallen that's what i was Uh i literally was like great (laughs) that's like ooh, that sort of mostly abstract thing that i just can't always get on board with well you know at first i was like Great. I, you know, I'm not interested in this theme, but you know what I figured out pretty fast uh-huh. is it's good when like one of us chooses a theme the other's not comfortable with. That's true. It totally pushed me beyond the parameters yeah. of what I'm comfortable with. And the research that I did and the poet that I chose, mm-hmm. I'm so glad. And you really went all out for this one. I did. You you consulted people in I real did. life. You went to libraries and bookstores. I did. I'm so honey. proud. I said, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. <laughs> yeah, and you did. So I I was so upset that I lost this episode just for that reason <laughs> because it, uh, we re- we start we stopped recording the first time when we completely finished this, and I was like. That was one of the best episodes that I think we've ever done. I'm so excited. And I was so excited to get to it and yeah. edit it. And then, and then I it watched it fade away into um, outer space. Well, all things happen for a reason. <sighs> yeah, yeah. And I believe that since we're re-recording it, it's going to be even better because I'm more comfortable with the subject. You're going to be able to yeah. speak with some intelligence to what I'm going to say. <laughs> That's true, because I was a total dumb <laughs> person before. But no, the upside is, is that this forced me to drive to your town, and yes. our audio is so much better here, because wow. your ceilings don't go up to the heavens. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah this, this little room is... Perfect. I never thought about it, but it's kind of a great podcasting room. It, it's a podcasting studio. I don't care about whatever other purpose <laughs> that it serves. Like, this is the studio now. Excellent. Well. Yeah. Okay, so I'm really excited to get into this. Um, we're, this is a really broad theme that we have going on mm-hmm. this time. So, like, take it wherever. All, all that matters is that you're going to tell us about a poet. I mean, I'm diving right in head first. Do it. No fear. Okay, so I did a lot of research because I, as I was doing research on poetry in general, mm-hmm. I kind of figured out what kind of poetry 
I really appreciate. That's big. And by doing that, I was able to suss out a, a poet. And I wound up kind of going beyond the parameters of what we normally do. I chose an Argentine poet Ooh. whose work is not really available in English. Uh, so before I get into this... That's bold of you. <laughs> well, yeah. And the research, I mean, is fairly limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's enough for me to get a picture of this woman's life and her work and why she wrote the way she did. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited because I had to do like all kinds of little translating tricks, use people and machines and all kinds <laughs> people of People and machines. So I'm really interested. Yeah. So anyway, the I really want to get right into it. Uh-huh. The poet I chose is Agustina Pastora Andrade. That's beautiful. Okay, thank you. And last time before the episode was deleted, we talked about how you are a... French speaker. Yes. And that this is not natural I have no for Spanish, you. Yeah. And I have a little bit of Spanish. <laughs> mm-hmm. So combined we we will sound like a a two year old uh, native <laughs> Spanish speaker. Well, I'm I'm, I'm you know, I'm leaning on you for this in oh, terms of cute. pronunciation. So when I, I glance in your direction. And I'm leaning on a prayer. So let's go. <laughs> on the lane. We're halfway there. <laughs> oh. So anyway, okay. my poet, she was born on August 9th, 1858. Some sources say 1861, but most say 1858. Mm-hmm. In Guale Guaychu in Andre Rios, which is an Argentine province sandwiched between Uruguay and Buenos Aires. So it's right on the border. And she was the daughter of a famous poet whose name was Olegario Victor Andrade, who was born in Brazil but spent most of his life in Argentina. And her mother was Maria Eluisa Quinones Gonzalez. And Andrade was the eldest of their five children. She was always interested in writing poetry, and she actually began publishing at age 16. She worked a great deal with her father, and also with another Argentine poet named Leandro in Alem, and she helped them produce the 1877 edition of the Album Poetico Argentino, which was a collection of Argentine poetry that was released in 1877. Her father encouraged her writing a great deal, and she started to really regularly get published um, when she became, like, later in her teens. And the conduit through which she produced most of her work was La Tribuna, which I believe is a newspaper. From my research, every Spanish-speaking country in the world has a newspaper called La Tribuna, so I guess that was (laughs) Argentina's version of that. Um, She was considered to be one of the principal writers of the Generation of 80, And she was lauded as being, quote, probably the most praised female poet of the 1870s in Argentina. Now, just for reference, because I didn't know what this was, and I'm assuming nobody else does either. The generation of 80 was, it's in reference to the governing elite who ruled Argentina between 1880 and 1916. And that group consisted of members of the country's oligarchy, and they filled the country's highest public, political, economical, military, and religious positions, and they stayed in power through electoral fraud. The Generation of 80 ended in 1916 after the passage of the Sinez Banyat Law, which guaranteed universal and obligatory male suffrage and a secret ballot in Argentina. Mm -hmm. So prior to 1916, not all men could vote. And there was not a secret ballot. So this ensured that not only were all men allowed to vote, but they were basically you had to vote. And I asked this question before. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> Ask again. And uh, that just shows how information just doesn't stick in my head. But who were the men that were allowed to vote? Do you know? It was, okay, so it's kind of like the situation in Britain and the United States mm. in like 1780. where like it's a class issue. You had to own property. You uh-huh. had to have a certain amount of status. Uh-huh. It wasn't like just being a citizen was not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, eight, in 1916 when this law passed, it did not allow women the right to vote. So okay. that came later. I don't know which year, but it did come later. Yeah, because as an American, you, I, I look at it from like a race issue, and I know that it's not going to be the same in Argentina. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. And one thing I should mention talking about all this is um, this poet is a white Argentine person. Okay. So I mean, she's of direct Spanish descent, and mm-hmm. that's just about it. There's no native blood in her veins. Okay. I just want to throw that out there. We'll get into some of the terminology later the complexities complexities. yeah and back to the generation of 80 it was also associated with public free and compulsory primary education and expanding incentives for european migration so even though these people were very oppressive to the public they introduced the idea of everybody's got to go to school Mm -hmm. Uh, we're going to you know take attendance and we want everybody to be literate at least the idea of that and they also bolstered um incentives to encourage Europeans to move to Argentina. So what they did is they were trying to say, hey, you don't have to leave Italy or Greece or Spain and go to the United States or Canada. Mm -hmm. Come here instead. And interestingly enough, a huge portion of the population of Argentina is of Italian descent. And actually, Uruguay, um, 25% of the white people in Uruguay are of Italian descent. I know. Just like, I'm like, hi. <laughs> and Argentina continued, I mean, really well into the 20th century. Uh-huh. European migration there was extensive. Yeah. Um, famously. Nazis. The Germans. Yeah. Found haven Fleeing. there. And Buenos Aires is considered the Paris of South America. It's mm-hmm. a, the, the building style. It's a cafe culture. It's mm-hmm. intellectual. And it contrasts pretty heavily with the rest of Latin America in that the sort of look of things and the atmosphere. It's like European. It's way more European. Yeah. And it kind of speaks to, I think, the racial makeup in Argentina, which countries like Brazil and Peru and Bolivia and stuff mm-hmm. like that, even Mexico, Mexico, <laughs> they have uh, more of a, I think, mix of the native culture with mm-hmm. sort of the Spanish imperial culture. Yeah. And in Argentina, they seem to have mostly built their society around That's interesting. Spain's. Because um, you, you recognize so many countries being like, okay, if we're welcoming welcoming in new people, we're going to also preserve our native customs. Right. And I think that Argentina really, kind of like the United States, you know, the United culture of the United States is fundamentally based on British legal and social mm-hmm. customs. Mm-hmm. So I think Argentina is similar. But the United States is extremely different than yeah, Britain. Yeah. Um, and back to the generation of 80. <laughs> because it was kind of a period where you had a ruling elite, mm-hmm. it had it naturally had an effect on art being produced during that period of time. And most of the art, both visual and literary, being produced between 1880 and 1916, um, was it featured like pressing social issues, sort of focusing on poverty and classism, if you look up Argentine art from the Generation of 80 period, it's it's like a woman and her children, and it's entitled, like, Mother Without Bread, or, you know, stuff like that, or, mm-hmm. like, men without who aren't able to find work sitting yeah. on the street. So it really um, 
was a pointed way to get across the public's general dissatisfaction with the way things were mm-hmm. going. Now, Andrade, on the other hand, wrote highly romantic and limpid poetry. She was, of course, a member of the oligarchic society. She was uh, bourgeois and elite, and her work kind of reflected that. She drew heavily upon nature imagery and emotional expressionism in her writing, and most critics believe the writings of Victor Hugo and Gustavo Adolfo Becker heavily influenced her poetic style. And when I read her work, I kind of, I'm not familiar with Becker, but I think everybody knows who Victor Hugo is, and everybody's kind of read something of his. Mm -hmm. And her, I guess you can see how it was influenced by it, but she's in no way, shape, or form copying him. Okay, Um, yeah. Because when I read that, I was like, wait. I don't know that I agree. But she was definitely writing from a place of, I'm taking what I feel on the inside, and I'm pushing it out. Mm -hmm. And so, um, even though her work was sort of lovely and romantic, it's also very piercing, too. Mm -hmm. And so, you'll see that whenever I read um, an excerpt. Her poetry was almost universally well-received, and it was praised for its representations of, quote-unquote, idealized romantic love. Mm. Um, in fact, her poem, uh, La Fée, was described as a revelation by the literary elite in South mm. America at the time. In his 1877 work, Poesias, poet Hervecio Mendes includes the poem, Cuando vuelves a tu patria, a mi simpatica amiga Agustina Andrade, which literally translates to when will you return to your country to my good friend, Agustina Andrade? Mm-hmm. And she never lived outside of Argentina in her life, but she kind of left Buenos Aires okay. and lived outside of that. So I think he's saying, come back to us here. Because mm-hmm. um, Buenos Aires really functioned as the cultural hub yeah. um, of Argentina. There I was see. not a competing city there. It's not like you have New York and Los Angeles and yeah, Chicago exactly. and America. So, and like for her to be like kind of in that ruling class right. a little bit, they're like, yes. come to our social circles. and Exactly. Yeah. Her father died in 1882, mm-hmm. and that had an interesting effect on her. They were very close. He was her mentor. Mm-hmm. He encouraged her writing. And so that kind of, um, I don't know that there's much in her work that you could say, ah, oh, I can see how she may have been emotionally disturbed at that time. But it definitely affected her on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Now, she met the military officer Ramon Lista, who was born in 1856, when she, when he arrived to explore southern Argentina. Now, he was an Argentine man himself, but he was a military fellow. He was very adventurous, and so he didn't kind of run. In the, I think he was also a member of the elite, but they didn't run in the same circle mm-hmm. of friends. Uh, he was from Buenos Aires and very handsome, and in 1879, they married in the capital city. Lista subsequently left for the Territorio Nacional de Santa Cruz, um, where he became the region the region's second governor ever. And while Andrade, uh, while he was there, Andrade lived in Temperley, which is about 20 kilometers outside of Buenos Aires. So she was living kind of between the capital city and where he was situated. Okay. Why she didn't just stay in Buenos Aires, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, Because of his job, they rarely saw each other. However, their marriage did manage to produce two daughters. Mm -hmm. In 1890, she discovered that her husband had another family in Patagonia, where he was the governor. And that family was the product of he and an indigenous 
Tehulche woman named um, Kuala, 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 um, with whom he had a daughter. Heartbroken by the news, Andrade basically secluded herself in her temporary house for months on end. She mm-hmm. would not see anybody. And she ultimately wound up leaving her two daughters in the care of her mother in Buenos Aires and committed suicide via revolver on February 10th, 1891. She is buried in the famous and highly exclusive La Recoleta Cemetery in Buenos Aires, which is the same cemetery where Eva Perón and several Argentine presidents and one of Napoleon Bonaparte's granddaughters are buried. So she's in one of the great cemeteries of Buenos Aires. Yeah, she was a very emotional person and based on the little bit of information (laughs) that I I found I'd wager somebody who probably suffered from a depressive some kind of yeah some sort of mental illness of some commit suicide over something like an affair yeah that's crazy Mm -hmm. and it's not just an affair either it's like like a whole nother family (laughs) yeah like and and multiple people probably knew about it exactly that's that's intense right Man, that's interesting. But that's like a that's an interesting life. I don't know why, but last time I didn't like pick up on the the fact that she was like wealthy and mm-hmm. like involved in high government and stuff for some reason. She was not like she would have been active in the generation of eighty, but in terms of like a, a female role, she was not uh-huh, involved yeah. in government. That's true. But I mean, you know, think about it. She would have. I guess. I mean, I'm trying to think of an equivalent in our that we can use kind of, but I mean, think of her maybe in terms of a Jane Austen who would have lived, a, you know, ostensibly a century before and that are they in, mm-hmm. in Britain? Yeah. Um, where you've got somebody who is influential in terms of their literary skill, who is by no means poor. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe Andrade was a little bit more affluent than, than yeah, Austin. Yeah, let's say Austin was pretty... Like, her father was, like, she was a, a parson. Yeah. Or like, what do you call it? Pastor? Parson? Yeah, I parson. don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it just, I'm just thinking in terms of what we could kind of grasp. She was somebody who... She was very social. Yeah. Um, before she kind of got isolated and temporarily, mm-hmm. she was... And she was not a great beauty. Mm-hmm. But people were drawn to her sort of magnetism. She was yeah. highly intelligent. Uh-huh. She was very passionate. And no, she... Her... You said her father was a famous poet. Right. So, I mean, when someone is famous and they're known for something and they have a child, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking like Will Smith and his kids who like make music, you know? Right. People are like, okay, we'll listen to this this child of right. this famous person. And she was skilled, so... I mean, she proved herself. Interesting. Yeah. Un, you know, I'm not going to say unlike Will Smith's <laughs> kids, because I'm not really f- super familiar with their work, yeah, but yeah. this is a situation where she did have her father's name mm-hmm. to back up her work, but it, it yeah. took... I mean, really, her career eclipsed that of her father. Really, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, but coming from it from this angle rather than like before, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, her dad was a poet, <laughs> but like, it's like, oh, well, she's really wealthy. At this time, there seems like there was a lot of like turmoil and upheaval nice. and like fighting against this generation of 80 or like, yeah. you know, the people in power at the time so that people got equal rights and they were able to vote across the board. Mm-hmm. So yes. it would be interesting to see if she weren't wealthy and she weren't well known how her writing would change, you know, if right. she'd be writing about how unfair it was that everyone didn't have the right to vote, Perhaps. you know, but she's, she's coming at it from like a romantic kind of point of view. Right. And that seems a little bit, I don't want to say closed minded, but limited. Well, and limited is the right word. And I think that no matter who you are, you're writing from your perspective. Yes, absolutely. And she's certainly living in a time where the options for broadening that her perspective would have been extremely limited. Oh, absolutely. You know, nowadays, there's really no excuse in the developed world to be ignorant. Mm-hmm. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. 
to to remain ignorant. And we're talking about a woman in you know the nineteenth late nineteenth century living in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking, yeah, her scope was limited, and probably there was little encouragement, motivation, or reason to kind of go beyond that. And what access would she have had, I, I guess, to, to lower-class people who I, I were wonder, struggling? I wonder how sheltered she would have been. Mm-hmm. Think, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of you know, the United States, you know, uh, the Gilded Age, mm-hmm. which would have happened sort of around the time she was alive. So, you know, and most women who were from, you know, important families, they, they had very little concept of what poverty meant. Yes. Oh, you were talking about Frederica Bremer. Yes. I, I, I flashed back to that and how she wasn't allowed to run around outside no. while her brothers were able to. Yes. And, like, for exercise, they would hold onto a back of a chair and, and bounce up and down. Mm-hmm. And that just, like, describes it all. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, um, I mean, you're not even allowed to say, walk by yourself down the sidewalk. You yeah. Know? Oh. Just so, it's just these ridiculous cultural expectations uh-huh. of femininity and how to preserve that and to achieve mm-hmm. the ideal concept of womanhood yeah. so limits your ability. And so, per, honestly, I believe that's why her husband's infidelity fidelity was such a shock <laughs> because she could not conceive of something like that. And that was, like, the one thing that she was guaranteed, I uh-huh. guess, in life. Right. Was, like... A husband and a family. Uh-huh. Right. And, of course, a, a career in poetry. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's that's not everything. It's like, there's not. so much more that there's probably out there that mm-hmm. she wants to experience yes. or or saw other people experiencing. And, like, oh, well, that's not mm-hmm. something for me. And then the w- one of the few things that she has access to is just ends up in, right. like, ultimate betrayal. I mean, yeah. And she when she killed herself, she was under 40. I mean, she was a young wow. woman. She was 34 So she must have married very young, too. Yeah, so she was born in 58, mm-hmm. and she married in 79, so she would have been 21. Yeah. So she was a very young woman. Wow. Yes. And, you know, I'm going to read two of her poems mm-hmm. in English. And I want to say this. I consulted a colleague of mine uh-huh. at work <laughs> whose name is... Tita Uh Hernandez Maltez. Uh And I said, Tita, I need help, honey. And (laughs) she was able to answer some, kind of give me a launching point for some cultural questions I had. Yes. And she was willing to work with me on the translations. And she was very upfront with me. She said, listen, this is like high Spanish from Argentina. Mm -hmm. She's a Mexicana. Tita is. Uh And so she's like, the Spanish that I know is different. But we were able to work together. She helped me. I was able to pull other resources. And the translations are fascinating so this is big this is big for us on this podcast in general it's like we have an actual like fresh translation because we talked about this in the past just how much of an art translation is i used to think you know you see you see poem translated by so and so i'm like why is their name there why does this matter Mm -hmm. it is an actual art form because you know words don't always align perfectly between languages so you have to choose the one that's best suited and we talked last time about how Rhyme gets lost. It does. And we, oh, we're, we're going to do this again. Right. <laughs> I need to stop referencing that. But we're going to go back and, and read a little bit of one of her poems in Spanish. To compare. Yeah. Because in English, it doesn't really it doesn't rhyme. rhyme. In Spanish, it does. Right. And we said this last time, too. And it was, to me, kind of an epiphany moment where, you know, everybody knows things are lost in translation. Mm-hmm. But we also said there's things gained through it as well definitely um there, another perspective yeah it's a give and take so i'm i i really love the way these turned out i can't wait to read them mm-hmm. i think it's a good sampling of her work because yeah. it's two of her most well-known poems um and it's the kind of poetry i like because 
it's totally to me it's lo- it's lovely mm-hmm. there you know it's it's beautiful but there's so many layers to peel back and analyze too yes, so definitely. you have both okay so i'm really I'm excited. excited yeah yes. let's let's get into it again yes <laughs> lagrima or tear in english by agustina andrade from uruguay to the edge in a summer night a pink lily that i saw embroidered in dew that shamefully tilts its calyx to another flower to leave a drop of shaking dew. The flower had already burned from the rays of the sun, found her smiling and cheerful that found her smiling and cheerful the evening red glow. The same way the soul's cry, sad like that flower, tends to descend one day a tear of love. And how does a bird wake up when the north wind roars, wake up the sleeping soul, shaking in inspiration? Nuestras Almas, or Our Souls in English, by Agustina Andrade. Two sighs unite on the way to heaven, because they spring from two chests that feel the same desire. Two white pearls of dawn that search for each other in the calyx of the flowers to return their colors and their perfumes. Two blue little clouds that unite in the sky to contemplate the moon and wrap her in their veils. Two harps that happily rhyme of love in the same poems, and sad if the other one is sad, they always search for the same topics. Two birds that sing at the same time, two streams that murmur, that is our souls, what eternal bliss to foretell. Wow, that was just as good as the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Great reading, Trevor. Oh, honey, I didn't much better the first time, but... um, the second, well, out loud reading that, I have to say the second out loud reading really, I guess, let me see things about the poems that maybe I didn't recognize Ooh, the first time. I'm Truly. excited to hear that now because yeah. we'll be bringing something new to one another in this. But I, I want to say that we've both, like, after reading those poems, we've both melted to the floor and we're just, like, ready to take this on. <laughs> I feel like we're just these Roman empresses. <laughs> <laughs> Someone come fan us yes. while we talk about this beautiful poetry. <laughs> <laughs> but the first thing that I wanted to say about Lagrima was, and I, I thought about this the, after the first time we read it and mm-hmm. talked about it, I like carried it with me for the next few days. Oh, really? Yeah. So when the first line, she says, from Uruguay to the oh, edge. Oh, that's my fa- literally my favorite line. Yeah. And we, and we talked about how beautiful that image was and how it kind of reflects her worldview almost Mm -hmm. because she she didn't travel extensively she lived in in this one little area of the world so it's interesting to see that she's like measuring her her space of existence this way you know from uruguay to the edge of the world almost Mm -hmm. and that's where it ends i think it's like this beautiful ode to south america Mm -hmm. that i just love people who love their homes because i, I love it. my home yeah. so much and yeah that's i don't have much more to say about that other than that it's it's a beautiful image i know that whenever i first read the poem to me that was i don't you know when you read something sometimes and often in prose it's like a line mm-hmm. or and i guess in poetry it's it's that also a line yeah but um, much smaller usually it's the thing you read and you i don't know i really don't know how to verbalize it it takes your breath it away. does mm-hmm. it's that breathtaking moment where you think my god if i could be because if i could be so concise 
I thought that in my head. I was like, it's the, it's, it's concise. And I said this, I think in a past episode that that's, what's so magical about poetry mm-hmm. is that you condense so much into such a small space. And that, that line, you know, sometimes poetry, me speaking as a so, so poet, you know, sometimes it comes to you very quickly, mm-hmm. but sometimes you think about what the best way to say something is for a very long time. I think you compared this to like uh, a really detailed needlework once in an episode. Oh, Do you sure. remember that? Yeah. It's like, no matter what it is, if it appears that it took a person a long time to construct something, it's more impressive most oh, of the sure. time. There's something about the power of language, whether it's Spanish or English or Chinese or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. There is nothing... I don't care what people say, like, oh, a look is worth a thousand words. Let me tell you what. The gift of language is powerful. Mm -hmm. And the way, as writers, we can use the language, the Mm -hmm. the gift of language, to sculpt, to paint. I mean, mean, (laughs) the written word is, to me, as potent and awe-inspiring and malleable as visual art, as a visual art Oh, absolutely. And so, no, I mean, and so when I see something like From Uruguay to the Edge, and then you go through, and that From Uruguay to the Edge is the beginning of what turns out to be the sort of unrolling, unraveling mm-hmm. of heavy nature imagery. Oh, yes. That, you know, the first time we read it, we were both like, there's some, we're interpreting it as some heavy sexual innuendo, but mm-hmm. also deep innocence. Yeah, well, well, before we get into the rest of the poem, I wanted to say that language has such... I mean, just think of, of how far we came from being humans that are grunting in caves mm-hmm. to expressing beautiful things like what we're about to discuss in right. this poetry. You know, it's like, for anyone to even say that language isn't as complex or beautiful as visual art is is the most absurd thing in the world exactly so i just wanted to say you know we took basic communication and made it an art form over the history of being human yeah and you may <laughs> cut this out but i'll say it anyway because when you said that i was like oh yeah here we go um it's funny how as human beings mm-hmm. we take th- things <laughs> that are kind of originate with basic survival so like food mm-hmm. um communication, verbal communication, um, clothing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because they start out as like, we must do these things to survive. And we kind of turn it into like fun, you know, like food is art. Let me tell you, every episode I have to talk about, because every episode we've, we're full of great food and drink. So (laughs) Trapper made, Trapper made this wonderful lobster. Oh honey, bless you. It was, it was like the stuffed lobster and it was like a combination of lobster and shrimp and crab, just like crushed up together with seasonings. I, I'm not the chef here and you're obviously going to hear that. And he just stuffed it back into a lobster carcass. (laughs) A carcass. (laughs) Honey. And that sounds horrific, I understand, because <laughs> I'm using language in a specific way right now. <laughs> but it was delicious. And well, thank you. Yeah, it, it went way beyond survival. It was just pure bliss. Right. So I, yeah. I'm trying to circle back to what you yes, were saying, but, but I'm just getting excited about the lobster again. So. <laughs> Lord have mercy. But yeah, I mean, it's just, this is a great example of how something like the need to communicate verbally, so you could say, watch out, there's a line. <laughs> you know? Or I'm starving and can't can't find food, you know, that translates into something like, um, in the summer night, a pink lily that I saw embroidered in dew. Mm-hmm. That yeah. has nothing to do with survival, but everything to do with life. Exactly. Just it's human experience yes. in general. 
So yeah, let's let's talk more about the poem because this is this is the one the the other poem that you wrote um wrote you <laughs> wrote, wrote around, that poem around, into it. the sunlight <laughs> yeah using my language yes. but the other poem that you read Nuestras Almas was easier to dissect than the Lin Lagrima yeah so what did you what general idea did you get from this poem <sighs> well you know that's a great question and I would <laughs> and I would respond with. <laughs> That it's something about powerful longing, mm-hmm. you know, and the sort of, um, I guess, the repercussions of that idea of unbending passion. To me, I'm interpreting this as love is the one thing that, like, is worth achieving in life, mm-hmm. but at what cost do we experience it? And yeah. so, you know, starting with the the first part about uh, the pink lily that the person who's writing this says, I saw embroidered in dew. And then she goes into that shamefully tilts its calyx, which a calyx is the unopened bud mm-hmm. of a flower. So that's symbolic of yeah. innocence. Actually, and then when I was thinking about the, the symbolism of the color pink, Mm-hmm. how innocent it is. Oh, yeah. You know, because, of course, red is, like, passionate and, in- like, right. like, that, and white is pure. Pink is just, like, oh, you just... in between of those Yeah, exactly. Just, like, almost coming to... It's like curiosity. It's like yeah. innocently longing for something. That I saw embroidered in dew, too. Oh, we, we talked about the, the, the visual image of the little dots of, of dew, like on a flower or on a leaf or whatever before, yeah. but we didn't talk about the symbolism and, and you know, we're going to get into something that is very <laughs> racy, I guess. Okay. But this like dew is such a <laughs> non-threatening type of wetness. You yeah, know what sure. I mean? It's, it's delicate and it's not all the way wet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just another layer to this lily that is shamefully tilting, dangerously close to... Can you push... Excalix to another flower. I see you wanting me to say things. I want you to be a little more direct with me here. (laughs) It's like, I think it's talking about, like, that moment before, like, deflowering, you know? Are you referencing sort of arousal? Yes, in in such a natural way. Right. Not even arousal, but, like, the moment before, like, sexual intercourse for the first time. So it's yeah okay I hear what you're saying. It's like you're already you're already halfway there, right? And it's happening. Yeah, and, and it's that that breath of a moment in between. Yeah, okay. and there's a little bit of like you know you're unsure because there is shame involved it, that shamefully mm-hmm. tilts. It's calyx mm-hmm. towards another flower. Okay, and then you know speaking of that, and to leave a drop of shaking dew. Ooh. So yeah. That's interesting. Okay, so going along with what I was, like, fumbling around saying before, the embroidered dew that's on the lily, it's almost like, I don't want to say infecting, but, like, spreading that arousal, temptation, what do you call it? You <laughs> I think to... you're dancing around some language. I, I, if, no, if I was, if I had a direct thought in my brain, I would just say it right now. Are we talking, I mean, it's like, you know, in a way, it's... Seduction? Yeah. I was going to say, like, it's, are you thinking of, like, insemination? No, no. I, I'm coming from a, a very, like, feminine place right now. Okay. Because I, I think we're dealing with a flower, which is very feminine, traditionally. Maybe it's like even going into, you said seduction, I'm thinking inadvertent seduction. Yeah, I'm leaning like towards that way. Like, maybe the fact that it's so heavy with dew is kind of forcing that flower to bend towards the other one. So it's like the flower... It's it's not it doesn't have a choice. It's responding to something natural. It's being weighed down by this dew, and if what you're saying is that dew is a sort of 
awakening sexual yeah. awakening and it's like pushing it to the other flower. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? So feeling kind of this the sexual attraction for the first time towards the other flower. And just be and like not even being able to control yeah. The movements. Like, you're just being weighed down towards but it. But see, if you didn't have control, then there would be no shame, really. And maybe there is... No, no. Maybe the shame comes with the lack of control. Oh, I see. I like that. And the inability to make the decision for oneself. It's like, I'm... You know, this... I, mean, I don't want to pull Andrade <laughs> into this, but I'm like, if you're a staid... That's what I was sort thinking. Sort of Victorian woman... Yeah, you have and, a certain yes. set of just, like... Uh, expectations on you. Right. You know, like these feelings, you can't really explore that. Yes. You can't take chances. You have a reputation to uphold in a family That's that right. has a reputation. Yes. Yeah. And then the next stanza, which is the third stanza, says, the flower, which I think it's referencing not the flower that's embroidered with you, but the other one mm-hmm. it's leaning towards. Yes. The flower had already burned from the rays of the sun, found her smiling and cheerful, the evening red glow. So we leap to red suddenly. Mm-hmm. Evening, which is sort of the finished finishing of something Mm -hmm. and the fact that the other flower has been burned Mm -hmm. by the rays of the sun yet is left smiling and cheerful i mean if the flower has been burned and she's sharing dew or the flower is sharing Mm -hmm. dew that's relief sustenance yeah okay (laughs) and maybe it's kind of like the scorching of passion leaves one bare ripped of all other things and it's in a way you said deflowering, you know, it's it's like it takes something away because it's got so much energy and you lose control and then what's left, you're like, oh my gosh, the scorched earth situation, but like, my goodness, how great. Yeah. How wonderful. In and the same way souls cry, mm-hmm. sad like that flower, tends to descend one day a tear of love. So it's interesting because even though smiling and cheerful in the evening red glow, the same way the souls cry, sad like that flower. So really, it's like maybe the flower is smiling mm-hmm. and ple- you know, but like maybe that's a sort of knee-jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. But what's on the inside is sorrow because it tends to descend one day a tear of love. There is this like this obvious departure from like the theme that I initially thought that was going on. No, here. I think it goes along with it. Really? Yes. Because you have this regret is kind of here in this I suppose Yeah, I guess if you're following a certain uh narrative, but in the beginning it's just like this this coming of age, this, you know, deflowering, this exploration. Yeah. That's the best way to put it, exploration. Mm-hmm. And I guess if if there's I'm not reading this stanza correctly. What are you interpreting it as? It just seems like a completely different poem at this point. I don't think what I'm, I'm building off of your interpretation. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm hearing the buildup of curiosity, Mm -hmm. exploration, experience, and building sort of regret. Mm -hmm. Okay. In this, in this fourth stanza in the tear of love. Yeah. Okay. And then let's, maybe the fifth stanza will draw this back all together. Because she departs from the flor- the flora mm-hmm. um, energy and goes into like a fauna. But so it's still natural, but a different element of yes. nature. And she says, and how does a bird wake up with when the north wind roars? Wake up the sleeping soul shaking in inspiration. So, this, so we're back to discovery. Back to discovery. Waking up, mm-hmm. you know. Being shaken violently. Exactly. Wake. Um, and then the sleeping soul, you know, the thing that jars it is inspiration. Mm-hmm. So I think it all kind of is... It comes back full circle for yes. me. Yes. I don't know why I was so derailed by that. What, what Well, it was jarring. Stanza. Yeah. But it kind of, loop, like you say, loops back into it. It's almost the stages of first, ex- first physical love. That's true. You know, you have the curiosity. It's very... 
uh, delicate and mm-hmm. sweet like a flower. And then suddenly the souls are crying and there's like regret and a little bit of sadness. And then you're awakened. But, like, but, it's, but that, it's almost like ripping a Band-Aid. Yeah, yeah. For lack of a better metaphor. And <laughs> which, which you're left with is kind of like... Shaking in its this, Yeah, this ebbing. The shame is ebbing. And what's yeah. left is... Potential, like potential, possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Excitement. I like it. I, I like it. I, I would... Even though we've read this a few times at this point... Right. I could still come back to it tomorrow and find something new. Yes. Because I think the, the last conversation we recorded in Lost Forever went very differently than this one. It did. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of poetry. Mm, well, the beauty of, of, of written language, but certainly poetry. Hearing you say that is the beauty of poetry is... <laughs> the one beauty. I'm just crazy. <laughs> You'll find the another. one redeeming quality of poetry is... <laughs> oh, poets no, hate you. I'm kidding. No, but, but I really, her work spoke to me. I'm not into modern quote-unquote poetry, this idea mm. of no rhyming. No, you need to just... It, sometimes, and this is, again, a generalization, but I've, I find that um, some modern poetry that I have been exposed to, mm-hmm. uh, it works and it has a concerted effort or it exerts an effort to not let you enjoy it. It wants to jar you. It wants to force you out of the moment. And yes. Yeah. No, there's an idea of, I think... <laughs> Poetry was so traditionally cast as this, like, formula for so long that modern poetry is just trying to completely disregard that tradition. And it doesn't need to all the time. Yeah. (sighs) On that note, I would love, you know, for Lagrima, that first stanza we both thought was so pretty. I'd love to hear that in Spanish again, because mm-hmm. I remember we kind of went through it and we were like, wow, there's some rhyming there. Yeah, exactly. And I that's just, what we were talking about before, yeah. how like in translation, rhymes can be lost. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read. I think I just read one or two stanzas. You really because, read like two. That was yeah, it. that was the most that I could I could manage. Yes. So yeah, <laughs> let's try this out. Excellent. Okay, so this is the first two stanzas of Lagrima. Del Uruguay a la orilla, en una noche de estío, una rosada azucena, vibolada de rocío, que rubarosa inclinaba su caliz hacia otra flor, para dejarle una gota de rocío temblador. Interesting. Yeah. No, really, I'm fascinated by that. So there was some rhyming there. There was some rhyming, and it was beautiful. And you know what else I picked up on? I, I don't know much Spanish, but I'm using context clues. It sounds to me like that first line uh, is verbatim from Uruguay to the edge, even in Spanish. Like, it, that was not a liberty taken. No, yeah. De Uruguay, uh, whatever. A la orilla. A la orilla. <laughs> no, and you have me. the rhyming, orilla, azucena, and mm-hmm. then you have estío, rocío, inclinaba, gota, flor, tambaldor. And we both, we noticed last time mm-hmm. that both poems mm-hmm. have a A-B rhyme scheme. Yes. A, B, A, B, through all Very the simple. Yeah. Yeah. Very simple. But I think sometimes it's that simplicity that uh, has the most impact, right? I mean, if you think about it. I mean, once with anything, if you get a consistent beat going, oh, yeah. you're in a trance as you're mm. reading. And A, B is the easiest way to do that. That's right. Well, I, I'm, I'm really glad we got to hear that. The way it was written. <laughs> uh, yeah. In your lovely Hopefully it was, it was all right. <laughs> it was lovely. Thank you. Uh, but I really am glad because it, to me, it kind of, 
what we just read to me is a, almost a little more modern-esque, mm-hmm. even though it has all this pretty imagery and stuff. In in English, it really reads as maybe more Traditional. 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Know? And then That's this is, is definitely, like, just based off of the... The way it sounds, again, I have no Spanish, but it, it sounds to me like a little more uh, what one would expect. Exactly. And that speaks to, like, how styles changes. You know, styles change, oh, Lord. <laughs> because, like, it's the same content. She's saying the same things in both, kind of, um, to an extent. Yeah. But just erasing the rhyme scheme. It's like, oh, this could be modern poetry. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So, I, yeah, that's interesting for Lagrima. Well, and, you know, if we look, take a quick look at Nuestras Almas. Yes. Um... One thing that I noticed in everything I read of hers mm-hmm. is her use of nature imagery. Yes. She really likes to talk about flowers. Uh, you can even see in the second stanza of Nuestras Almas, she says the, the second, I mean the third and fourth lines are, in the calyx of the flowers to return their colors and their perfumes. So again, she's referencing calyx. the unopened bud. Yeah. Um, to return their colors and their perfumes. So there's always, it seems to me, a swapping of things mm-hmm. or, a, or a taking back and a giving, a give and take between these natural elements. Yeah. And it's almost, because I'm sorry, we were yeah, talking about in Larima how it's like the calyx, it seems ready to open. And here in Nuestros Almas, it's closing and returning That's right. to themselves. Like the colors, it's like right. almost like a rebirth it says, internally. Two white pearls of dawn that search for each other in the calyx of the flower. So what's happening is it's like these two white pearls mm-hmm. are being are within. There there something in the calyx of that flower. You know? Yeah. And of course white, like you said earlier, signifies, color imagery purity. Okay. And then pearls, we mentioned this last time. Mm-hmm. In terms of precious stone I mean a pearl maybe isn't a stone, but like a precious object. Uh, I think pearls are the most feminine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you did never see that a man before. wearing like a uh, sort of tie pin that's got a pearl yeah. in it. Yeah, last time you said cufflinks that cufflinks. were like pearls or something. I really, I think in the West we associate pearls almost exclusively with the feminine. Definitely. And there's something about pearls too that signify fertility too. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, because they're egg-like. Yeah. And B, because they come from within the oyster. And you know, we, I think we talked about this last time. I just, about how oysters or clams look like vaginas to me. <laughs> Oh, I think you. I think that. I did, and I, I knew you were probably like I was hoping that you wouldn't mention that again I this time. About that. But I did, and also I think I mentioned how like you know an oyster, a pearl is like a grain of sand that the oyster like smooths out yes. to avoid irritation. And I was like, that's be- it, it, at viewing it in a feminine way. I was like, wow, women are handed a lot of bull. A lot of times, and they make it beautiful, and that's that's why I think pearls so are that's wonderful. What you're reading, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andrade was probably like, no, not at all. I just said pearls. Maybe, and she may have thought, you know, uh, she may have had some insight into what you're talking about. Yeah, or she's just like, shut up, Kate. No, when she she's using, I'm looking at this, and you know, in that second stanza, she references white pearls. Mm-hmm. In the third stanza, she starts off with two blue little clouds, and then she goes into even more feminine imagery mm-hmm. she ref- she says that unite in the sky to contemplate the moon which mm-hmm. in terms of heavenly bodies the moon is uh, the sun is the masculine the yeah. moon is the feminine mm-hmm. and then the clouds she's talking about the clouds here she says and wrap her in their veils yeah the idea of being veiled both in an eastern and western context is almost exclusively feminine as well yes absolutely um and then to harps that happily rhyme harps okay Again, I'm talking about a Western context. 
the harp is a female instrument. Mm-hmm. That's very few male harpists. Mm-hmm. That's something women of culture, especially in the 1880s, would this be doing. This is all changing my initial interpretation of this poem. <laughs> it seemed like a very obvious love poem. Two souls uniting right. in just these constant examples of two things coming together mm-hmm. and now it just seems just overwhelmingly feminine and it this is, is just this the straight woman who was married to a man you know just and t- to me i'm thinking you know i know where you're going with this two versions of yourself no because where i normally go with this is something gay so that's what i thought you were going <laughs> no no i'm not oh, going cool. there at all okay. no not at all you're, you're like, saying oh, two wow. versions of oneself two versions of oneself okay. coming together and i i'm just saying that mostly because like you know coming together in the calyx that is that is such a personal mm-hmm. space like calyx of a flower you know it can't right. be two entities have to be one just yeah two pieces of of one coming together and I'm, I'm probably trying to reflect her life experiences on this a little Perhaps. bit too much. You know, like her healing or attempt to heal mm-hmm. after being cheated on. I don't know when this poem was written, but it just seems like a recovery of some type. Well, and I'm kind of springboarding off of that. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely seeing, for me, I'm seeing this as, uh, again, returning to the idea of her perspective. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing all this feminine iconography. Uh, iconography <laughs> imagery i guess i don't know iconography would not yeah, work here but imagery you know. <laughs> um and themes because we're dealing with somebody who's got a limited scope or who's or who's writing this with a specific is with this sort of stuff in mind i mean i'm not saying this is like a woman who la di was you know was maybe had great potential but wasn't educated for all i know this woman is saying i am being hyper intentional with this that and the other in terms of uh pearls and harps and flowers Mm -hmm. um maybe she's really trying to spark something in the minds of her readership that maybe is not familiar with you and me Mm -hmm. these might be codes Mm -hmm. um you know i think about i I know that this is true in in writing but i know i'm thinking about you know um in old black and white movies you couldn't reference sex and so Mm -hmm. some of the tricks directors developed and it was codified so that audience members would understand so like uh, if you found, if someone was, if the screen went black and then immediately there was a cut to another scene and someone was smoking a cigarette, mm-hmm. that means the two people would just yeah. have sex. Uh-huh. So I'm like, for all I know, some of the stuff she's dropping in there are meant to say, bang. And people reading it in the 19th century in Argentina may yeah. have said, ooh, ooh, and it may not be sexual, it may be something else. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But this all may be codified. But I will say this, reading this and Lagrima. Mm-hmm. You really get an idea of somebody who has a very pure, and when I say pure, I mean hyper-distilled concept of love, romantic love. Mm -hmm. So when she finds out her husband's unfaithful, not only that, but that he's essentially been living with this Mm -hmm. other woman and has an offspring with this other woman. I really understand, I think I can grasp the idea of her wanting to end her life because what you're seeing here is love is literally the basis for existence. Yeah, exactly. And if, and if it cannot be trusted, then what can, right. Nature cannot be trusted. You know, she equates love to nature Mm -hmm. so much Yes. that it's like, what is the point in existing in this world of pink lilies and dew and, and birds singing and wind when all of it reminds me Mm -hmm. of love, because that is what I associate it with love. Yeah. I can understand that. It would be unbearable. Yeah. So I think that the poetry gives a glimpse into this woman's psyche, mm-hmm. or at least minds, you know, the, the way she processed things, and they're lovely. Mm-hmm. 
and I think it reflects both her station and the period in time that she wrote and um, the, the, her country of origin. She was very proud to be an Argentine woman. She was very proud of her heritage and so I, I think that all that is reflected in this work, um, especially when you get to that, again, that first line from Uruguay to the edge. Argentina is essentially the end of the world. I mean, literally a few hundred miles from the tip of Argentina is Antarctica. Mm -hmm. So she's like, this is it. Are, guys. Yeah. So I really, I loved her work. I love her work. It's not really available in English. So anybody who wants to read it, they have to buy the book in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah, look for Tita. <laughs> look for Tita. <laughs> She'll tell you. Her number is 555. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but this this was really exciting. I, I love her work. I you know, we talk about how she kind of existed in the space from Uruguay to the edge and everything just seemed pretty pure and closed off. Yes. But when you get to the base of what it is to be human and mm -hmm. you ask yourself what really matters. That's, that's what I see when I look at this work. Right. It's, you know, like, if, if you stripped away all, like, the bull that we deal with on a daily basis, what would you what would be left to write right. about? And that's human connection mm -hmm. and nature. That's all we really have. So, yeah, I love this. Good choice. I'm glad we've recorded Thanks. this episode twice now. It was worth it. It was. I mean, if we had to, if I had to pick anyone to do another episode on, it, it would be this. Because mm -hmm. I've seen this poetry from different angles this time. We totally took this on, on a different slate than the first go-round. Yeah, so I hope we are all very... Very curious about what we talked about last time. Yes, and I can't wait for everybody to hear the poetess you chose. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's gonna be interesting. If you thought the Spanish was bad, <laughs> wait till you hear <laughs> this seventeenth, eighteenth. Don't tell them who it is. Mandarin. Yeah. Okay, you're right. You just said Mandarin, so bye. Cut it out. <laughs> Cut it out. Edit it out. But I'm gonna believe it. <laughs> it's funny because not only did you choose poetry as the the topic, the theme. Mm -hmm. But we both kind of went our separate ways and somehow managed to say, we're sick and tired of Europeans and Americans. And so uh, <laughs> yeah. you chose no somebody from them. a totally different continent. Oh, yeah. I chose somebody from a totally different And continent. I'm proud of us for that because that's what we set out to do. Yeah. And we had been scared to do it for so long. Yes. Well, we finally grew up and said, we're going to tackle this. Yes. <laughs> and take it now. <laughs> so if you're a translator, give us a call because we're yes. going to need you in the future. <laughs> yes. Well... Okay, so this has been the second recording of episode 13 of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kenshin. And thank you for joining us as we try to read a little more. Find a little better. And explore the human condition together.